and welcome to Demo Tapes, the music podcast where we hit rewind on the careers of some of the world's biggest bands and artists. I'm Sarah Jane Kemp and this is my co-host Richard Martin. I think you found it's Rick. It's always Rick, never Richard. Richard, well why did you choose Rick? I mean, for the obvious reason of living la vida loca, the one and only Ricky Martin. Why did you choose Rick after that? You, so, are, you're, you, you have probably gone through a, a whole lifetime of living la vida loca abuse, right? Oh yeah, I mean, I, I've got um, I've got memories that span most of my childhood going to kids' parties and everyone thinking they're the first one to put the record on to kind of show me up. I've been to karaoke <laughs> sessions where it's been put on and I've done it in the style of Liam Gallagher. Probably footage of that <laughs> oh, floating around wow. one of my it's previous a, previous employers. Like but there is, there is a story behind this. So, you know, I was born Richard Martin. I hate the name Richard. It sounds like a school teacher saying Richard Martin in, in a kind of, you know, Mancunian uh, sort of drawl and I think when it came to choosing my name to say uh, you know I chose Rick at probably about the age of 10 11 I wonder if this is interesting for listeners or not if it's not you're gonna well, get I think it is because, well I'm hoping that everyone has thought the same as the thing as what I've okay just said, well, so. well th- th- this is my time to actually fully this is your explain, time to explain your name so Rick I think came about when I was about 10 11 um, and this is before the days of, of Ricky Martin so I kind of settled on it and then I think as you know, when Ricky Martin emerged, I thought, well, do I go back to Richard? No, but I hate the name Richard. Now I thought, well, could I use my middle name? So, like, you're using your middle name, Sarah Jane Kemp. That could be Rick James. That doesn't work. <laughs> That's even better. I could be James Martin. That doesn't work. So any kind of combination of my name sounds stupid. So I, I, I basically essentially went with the one that I thought sounded best from kind of a pure name point of view, taking out of the equation kind of any kind of outside influence so that's how I've landed on Rick Martin I've had many times to kind of change this you know when I worked for Enemy there were writers there who routinely changed their names you know Tim Jones probably one of the most kind of famous Enemy mm-hmm. writers of the last kind of 20 years yep. his surname is J-O-N-E-S not J-O-N-Z-E yeah 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 James yeah, McMahon okay. was known as James Jam there's a guy called Johnny Cigarettes I'm sure his family name is not Cigarettes who wrote for Enemy in the 90s so you know I, pr- I suppose I had a chance then to switch up um, my name for kind of print purposes and didn't, so I'm kind of. Do you stuck think with a it. lot of people used to read those articles and not take you seriously because of your na- because of your name? Did you ever get anyone writing in? Uh, I mean, it's it's the joke everyone thinks of the first one, first one to crack. But um, I mean, that I suppose because I was more in the print days. A lot of a lot of my articles didn't, you know, only appeared online kind of later on. And yeah, you get the odd the odd comment here and there but you know water off a duck's back yeah yeah, yeah. I, I think i'd prefer to be rick james rather than ricky martin but anyway j- definitely don't want to be james martin it's too late it's too late, for <laughs> too me. I, late. I may change back to too richard late. when i hit 60 how about richard that richard martin anyway, anyway enough, yeah, we, enough about me <laughs> but i think yeah, i think everyone needed to know that because i'm sure the thoughts gone through their mind um anyway this is episode nine can you believe it because I can't. Ne- nearly into double figures. Nearly into double figures. Just seems like yesterday when we first sat in this room recording. Um, and this week we are going back to our usual guest speaker style. Um, we had a bit of a break off that last week to kind of give you a bit of a more of an information about who we are. Um, don't know if you want to know or not, but we found it quite funny to do. And um, we're going to be doing more of those um, along the way. And this week we're going back to our usual format, um, or the one we started with at least, of hitting rewind on an artist. Yeah, and this week we're going to focus on Pete Doherty. Now, you might you might be thinking, well, hang on, a few weeks ago, didn't you do an episode on the Libertines? And if you really know your music, you'll know that Pete Doherty is the co- uh, the co frontman of the of the Libertines. But yeah, what we actually thought was that 
I mean, Pete is such uh, a kind of iconic artist of our of our of our era, I suppose. Certainly of our kind of years of growing up. That there's there's kind of so much to get into with him, especially I think with his time outside the Libertines. So you know, with his work with Baby Shambles and uh, he was like a his solo band, and also his solo albums that aren't called Baby Shambles, even though. Baby Shambles are essentially his kind of solo band. And he's such a massive cultural figure. Even if you're not really into indie music, you'll know who he is because of various different things he's done in his life. Um, but yeah, can I just say one thing? So we were having a chat the other day about this and in the same sentence you said, Pete Doherty and Pete Doherty. And I said, well, so which one's right then, Rick? Thinking you'd have the answer and you don't, do you? I I'd always say Doherty. I can't be sure. I, I think I... it's Doherty though, because I've got a friend with the surname, the same surname, and she says Doherty. I think both are right. I think I naturally uh, say Doherty, but I think maybe at times I, f- I switch it up to Doherty. So probably at p- points in this episode, we're going to switch between the two. Well, I won't say Doherty. I think that's right, though. But anyway, well, you can call him Doherty, and I'll call him Doherty. No, I like Doherty. I always, I've always said Doherty. So I think the main thing we want to kind of get into in this episode, I guess, you know, obviously we talked to. Um, Anthony Thornton a couple of episodes ago about kind of the beginning stages of the Libertines and we're not really going to kind of revisit that. We have got another special guest uh, this week. As much as this podcast is about our memories, we also love kind of bringing in special guests to talk about theirs on a particular band or artist and we've got Jamie Fullerton coming up a little bit later on um, and he's another, like Anthony Thornton, like myself, an enemy alumni. Um, he again, used his real name as well. He didn't used, have his, used he, his, yeah, he did use his, although I'm sure he's probably James Fullerton. Um, and um yeah i guess he was kind of the baby shambles libertines pete doherty correspondent after anthony thornton left enemy i think we mentioned in the episode that the way that it kind of worked at enemy that everyone thinks that everyone at enemy loved the libertines and loved pete doherty in reality it was just one or two writers who usually got assigned to it so there was kind of like a neat anthony thornton leaving and then jamie fullerton joining and jamie um kind of trailed pete for a good I'm going to say four or five years, um, and you know, there's some great. We've got some great stories coming up later on about prison, prison Pete, um, Pete in Paris, um, and just general kind of backstage. Um, yeah. it, it seems a bit comical, doesn't it? Because I was looking at some of the things that um, he sent it because he sent some to us, didn't he, before we did the interview, just for us to have a bit of a look over. And I do remember some. Of, no, I don't remember all of them, but I definitely remember some of them and seeing that Pete's mug, sh- <laughs> Pete's mug shop, looking out at me on the page and like a massive kind of headshot of Pete looking a bit worse for wear and that was his thing wasn't it and I think they that he were probably was responsible for creating the character that is Pete Doherty because and, and the enemy there was a platform for that at the time I don't know anywhere else that would be able to do that now if I'm honest like, I think what was interesting about that time and I was going to kind of come on to this is I think there were two Pete Doherty's around this time so we're mm. talking around kind of like the 2005 times I think before that you've got the Pete Doherty who was an enemy staple you know the Libertines had been on the cover a few times he'd been thrown out of the band um, they'd split up they'd got back together again uh, and then there's kind of the tabloid Pete and I think tabloid Pete came in I kind of zeroed this on on kind of 2005 when you know we met Kate Moss started going out with well, Kate Moss well that was Moss. it wasn't it that's when he became a household name but well, people didn't know about him before that unless you were in the kind of indie scene or exactly that. that and I then think all of a sudden us. my mum was like who is this ruffian that Kate Moss is going out with? I'm like, oh my it's exactly god, she's that. going out with Pete Doherty. <laughs> but I think at the time, we probably didn't realize, to us, it was like, how how can you not have heard of Pete Doherty? But yeah, you're right, yeah, in yeah. the wider consciousness. And I think probably what cemented to me, it's funny you mentioned your mum there, because I remember my dad 
uh, when I was at uni once, ringing me up and saying he'd seen Pete on Newsnight. And this was around kind of 2005, and he's like, I this, "This guy, this guy's really good. You know, he's, he seems like such a, a kind of talented but kind of sensitive soul." And yeah. I think, you know, that year what probably really cemented Pete in the national consciousness was when he played Live Eight, um, and he played Children of the Revolution with with Elton John. I think that was probably the point where, yeah, he went from from indie star Pete to kind of, I guess, tabloid tabloid bogeyman almost and yeah because he definitely wasn't a rock he never became a rock star did he i think that's probably key to note here as well he, he that could have elevated him musically but i don't think it did I think you mean that, he never became a bono or a, or a liam yeah or, no he didn't and, and he could have done he could quite easily have done have been uh, the boyfriend of one of the biggest supermodels that's ever walked the planet or ever walked the catwalk um but he didn't and i think there's probably reasons for that right well, like, they're pre- pretty pretty obvious reasons. Pretty obvious yeah, reasons. I mean, he's someone who shot himself in the foot or shot himself in other kind of parts of his body. Yeah. On a on a pretty uh, regular basis. But I guess what what we want to talk about on this podcast, you know, it's almost it's hard to get away from the tabloid stuff and some of that. I guess comes in with the things that Jamie will talk about. But in reality, I think we also want to talk about the music. We I personally think there's a perception uh, amongst a lot of the population that he is just some junky scumbag that plays the odd kind of uh, half-finished kind of acoustic ditty uh, when in reality I think when you look at his body of work over the last 10-15 years I think there's more quality in there than people would would realize mm. and I, I personally so we're going to talk about baby shambles here right I, I liked baby shambles and I did, I did go to see them but they weren't the libertines and I think that was the general consensus of baby shambles right yeah I mean they did play the odd the odd libertine song you have to remember when you talk about baby shambles as well that they had a revolving lineup you know they had mm. a kind of litany of of drummers and bassists and guitarists and you know some of them looked a little bit musicians union some of them were quite clearly some of uh some of pete's more kind of so i guess friends that he met through the other things he was getting kind of getting up to um but you know but equally i think um when they were on form when they when they really uh, were at the top of their game that they, they i think they were a live act Libertines is a different thing, you know, that, that's a double header between Pete and Carl. But I do think if you took Libertines out of the equation and just compared them with the other bands of the time, I think they still stood up as one of the best live acts at that time. Mm. Mm, do I disagree? I don't, I don't know if I can disagree with that, actually. But it, I think it depended on what mood um, Pete was in, you know, and I think, uh, and I saw, you know, kind of Pete Doherty, Baby Shambles, or, you know, one or the other, because he kind of, you know, he's one of those who would do a, a, a kind of planned toy Baby Shambles, but then would do an acoustic gig at a pub around the corner for 20 quid on the door, kind of quite mm-hmm. quite famously, you know, at a day's notice. Um, but there were points, I think, in their touring, I think particularly around 2007, where they did an arena tour around the Shotters Nation album, which is pretty much my favourite Baby Shambles album. I think that stands up against any Libertines album, actually as well, where they, they did sound like a consummate arena band. I remember reviewing the gig uh, for NME, it was like a double page spread, and I think the way I concluded the review is something on the lines of, you know, uh, maybe pigs can fly, and maybe Baby Shambles could become kind of an arena-filling, arena-sounding arena band. But they didn't, did they? So, can pigs fly? Maybe briefly, but then they... Then they, maybe, then they maybe they flew for that uh, one then, gig, then they, then and they then they fall, came back down. down, crashing down to earth again. But I think that's kind of what the... the um, you could call that as an analogy for Pete's personal life, and your career and personal life as well, couldn't you? He kind of had that moment, and it's kind of all gone crashing back down again, right? But regardless of whether or not he crashed, and that was the, the kind of big time for Baby Shambles, with that album, what what, what did you like about it? I think the key thing with that album is that they got the producer right. Uh, so this was produced by a guy called Stephen Street, um, who had kind of produced Morrissey in the past, Blur, yeah. Graham Coxon. Yeah. Um, and 
and, and I think he he, he kind of he didn't give it a pop sheen, but I think he gave it enough of a sheen that it that it just sounded well produced. He kind of teased the songs out of Pete that I think often get um, that can get lost in kind of the production side of things. I also weirdly have a bit of a Stephen Street mini story. There's nothing to do with Baby Shambles, but I guess because we're mentioning him, and I would actually love to get him on a future episode. So. Um, you know, may, maybe he'll appear on a future demo tapes episode. But I remember once I was out with a band. I can't remember who the band was. This was probably around this time actually. He was making Shot as Nation with Baby Shambles, and I was chatting to this this guy who was out with the band. Um, and I was saying, you know, how much I was a fan of Morrissey I was, how much of a fan of Blur I was, and I thought it's really odd how this guy seems to know a lot about Morrissey. In fact, <laughs> he's talking about Morrissey as if he knows him, and he's talking about Blur as if he knows them. So, you know, he went to the bar or whatever, and I said to my mate who I was out with, I said, who is this guy? I mean, where, where have you been hiding this mate of yours that seems to know Morrissey, seems to know Blur? And he went, Rick, that's Stephen Street. <laughs> and you're like, oh. Because obviously producers, you don't really know what they look like, yeah, do you? Yeah, you know, yeah, you, don't, yeah. you don't hear their voice. Yeah, um, true. And then when he came back, I had to say sort of, um, oh, sorry. Sorry, I, I didn't. <laughs> yeah, I didn't know. I didn't, I, didn't, I didn't realize you were was Stephen Street. Was it? Was it a bit awkward? Because I don't think yeah. they like producers. Don't generally don't like to have the fa- the the limelight, do they? They like to be a bit behind the curtains. Not all of them. I mean, you think of Diplo. He's kind of come out behind the curtain. Mark Ronson likes to be yeah, a bit of a star yeah, in his own right. Yeah, but they're Quincy not just, Jones. They're not just producers, are they? Mark so you Ronson's mean producer, 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 like behind the scenes producer, producer, ones that don't release their own albums. But that's fair, but I guess, I guess the one lesson I learned there is if you like an album, go and study who the producer is, find out what they look like and what they talk like, and then if you ever happen to run into them, you <laughs> won't make an like idiot of yourself. That's what you need, especially if you're a music journalist, I guess. It's the same in the restaurant industry. I used to work in the restaurant industry, and what you do is you put a, a list of all of the food critics and their faces in mm. the kitchen so that so you make all, this, all the waiting staff memorise the, their faces and when they came in you'd be able to go and tell the kitchen same sort of thing I guess if you're a music journalist you need to recognise everyone what you go to otherwise you end up looking stupid like you did in front of a world renowned, <laughs> yeah, a world renowned. producer well, at least it wasn't like Quincy Jones or something like <laughs> yeah, that yeah. but anyway uh, so we've kind of digressed there a little bit I think um, although we're kind of hitting on a topic I think we should go into which is you know what what have our interactions been with with kind of Pete down the years we've both uh both met the guy, um, mm-hmm. you know. I'll I'll say for me personally, um, never did a sit down interview with him. I think the likes of Jamie Fuller and Anthony Thornton, Matt Wilkinson, kind of uh, monopolised uh, that side of things. I got laboured with all the the lad rock bands instead. Uh, but I did meet him backstage a couple of times at gigs in passing, usually trying to get a story out of him and then kind of getting refused for an interview. Um, unlike you, obviously, where you you mentioned on a previous pod that you you had you, you did meet Pete and yeah. do a heavily inverted commas here for listeners interview. interview. Yes. So um, as you will have heard if you've listened to our Libertines episode, and actually got it wrong. I thought it was when I saw the Libertines, but it's actually when I saw Baby Shambles at Nottingham Rock City. Um, and just a quick recap, just in case you have heard this before, but uh, little tipsy Sarah, who used to write for a, a fanzine in Nottingham, fat, saw the fanzines on the side of, a, of a, a, a bar that she was in at the time before a Baby Shambles gig, had an idea to pick them all up, lug them back to, back to the backstage bit of Rock City, grab the first person she could see and say, can I have an interview with the band? They said, no, you can't get an interview with Pete. And I was like, fine, okay, fine, I don't, I don't mind, whoever. And then about 20 minutes later brought me inside into this room when Pete was standing there, introduced himself. Uh, and then I realised, oh my God, I don't have a pen. Oh my God, I don't have any paper. 
had to, had to ask the tour manager who was quite annoyed at the uh, <laughs> at me <laughs> me a little drunk 17 year old asking for a pen um managed to sit down and uh yeah so there was uh, what he was doing as he was sat next to me i had i was a very very innocent naive little 17 year old as well and um turns out he was doing something illegal let's just say it that way Downloading music. Downloading, <laughs> downloading music. This is before Wi-Fi. Smoking indoors. I think it was so long ago. It was before, yeah, smoking indoors. Let's put it that way. Um, but yeah, so it was, uh, I, uh, it's one of my favourite, favourite blagging moments. Like, I will take that one and I'll tell that to anybody who will listen because I think, well, anyone who li- will listen who likes Pete Doxy, right? Because um, it's just a f- hilarious story. Well, I reckon if we're ever going to get Pete on this podcast again, we're probably going to have to adopt a similar approach. So I think yeah, I think so. That's blagging. what I was saying. Maybe we should go down to Margate. I honestly genuinely believe that that is the best way to get them on the podcast. Let's Take go. the dictaphone down with us and ambush them. Go to an English, an English And I reckon if I do cafe. it, I'm probably more likely to because I can blag. I don't think you can. Uh, you do black and white. I'm too. Yeah, I, I think. I think that to be fair, that's exactly what happened with the, one of the times I met Pete backstage at a gig. Where uh, I think I was with Jamie at the time. And right. My my view was I'm news editor at Enemy. Pete's there. I'm just going to steam in and say, "Can we can we do an interview yeah. now? Are you still on heroin? <laughs> oh have you done God. any Have you done any new music?" Where Jamie's like, "Look, I've been working on getting this feature for about three months. Yeah, so yeah, 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 don't yeah. screw it up for trying to get a, trying to get." So a this is angle. exactly one of the one of the people we've interviewed before on this podcast. This was your approach before. Right, let's go and have lunch with this person. I was like, no, Rick, that's not how you do it. We're going to kind of, you know, do it my way. It might be a little bit slower. Slowly, slowly Slow- catchy. Yeah, you can't style. you can't just go in and go, like, but you can't be too direct. I think you can be direct when you're interviewing people, but I don't think you need to warm people up and make them feel like think- what you're doing is something. I think with this podcast as well, we're not, we're not, as I said before, we're not trying to catch people out. I mean, we probably i want to catch them out to get them to do the interview maybe but then once we've got the interview i want to kind of make them feel like they're doing something good rather than but i think this comes from my news background so it's all well and good saying you know you want to slowly slowly catch your monkey but when i was news editor at enemy or even in the kind of days before that because that was that was only for kind of a you know best part of a year you know you've got pages to fill and there's a deadline approaching yeah, yeah i get that you know i I'll, I'll admit i did um, and i won't necessarily name names but i did i wouldn't say trick people into being interviewed but i would interview a band on one pretense uh let's say that they've got a new album coming out or some live dvd or something they're trying to flog and actually i wanted to tell me about the work they've been doing on jack white's album that's just journalism 101 isn't it that's reporter journalism 101 i would rather just steam in there and ask the question though and spend three months you know hoping that, that, I, might, that I might get it anyway we're 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 going massively after, but I think it's important to for us to talk about. I think it's quite. It will probably explain some of the things f- further on down the line in our podcast, and we'll tell you these stories if we do go to Margate. And Rick bounds up to Pete outside a cafe, nicks a sausage, and goes, "Oh, mate, can we do an interview?" I'll be livid, hmm. and you'll hear about it here. So I guess speaking of uh, interviews with Pete and that sort of thing, now is probably a good time to kick into my chat with uh, Jamie Fullerton, a man who's interviewed Pete on uh, many occasions. I, I would almost give him the unofficial title of Enemies, Pete Doherty and Libertines correspondent between about 2007 and uh, sort of 2013-14. So he's one of your old colleagues from Enemy and, and you've obviously kept in touch since you, you left before he did right yeah. when did he so what's his career what's he done since enemy so he left a couple of years um, after me he graduated to kind of features editor after being the news editor in fact it was him leaving as news editor that made the space 
for me to join the staff briefly. Um, and yeah, since he left NME, he's kind of gone down a sort of a different path, I guess. Um, he's mo- he moved over to Southeast Asia. He's lived in China. I think he's currently in Vietnam, somewhere like that. Um, and he's basically become um, kind of the correspondent for quite a lot of newspapers over there, covering kind of a range of stories from both like quite serious stuff, you know, financial stuff or whatever, to um, some of the more kind of light, light-hearted. Um, and if you Google Jamie Fuller and Daily Mail, for example, you'll find all sorts of stuff where he's um, uh, wearing prosthetic breasts to breastfeed babies to get an understanding of how mothers uh, wow. feel. I think there was an article about him drinking his own urine that's worth a read. Um, some old Chinese medicine thing um, and one of the most recent ones actually he tracked down um, and I was telling you about this before we started recording the podcast this guy in Thailand who lives in a cave wears nothing but kind of a leaf and a and a, and a kind of a ball of string um, and he's, he's kind of known in the tabloids as like the Thailand <laughs> sex caveman or something where he brings back um, women who are on kind of backpacking tours to his to his cave. I can't believe um, that. And that's, that, that was that, that, him, that's odd. That ran in the sun uh, a few weeks ago. <laughs> but anyway, I mean, from, from Thai sex cavemen to Pete Doherty, um, yeah, that we'll, we'll, we'll play out the chat I had with, with Jamie now. And we're yeah, and how, how was it? So he came to, to London and you guys met up and... Um... Yeah, he's, he's back over for uh, a couple of weeks, I think. He kind of generally comes back a couple, once or twice uh, a year. And I said, look, next time you're back over, we'd love to rope you in for a, for a chat about the old days. And with, he was uh, keen, wasn't he? Cause with it's, Pete. I mean, it's, it's a really fun topic to talk about. And I guess it's to reminisce on stuff like that must be feel a bit surreal to him at the moment. And I think he's a little bit like me in that, you know, he's, he's a fan of the music yeah. and, and he's you know he's a bit of an encyclopedia on the music to be honest but he also kind of recognizes the fun of tabloid pete as well so right. so there's that kind of yin and yang of mm. you know he, he recognizes and every interview he's done with him has been about you know what pete doherty's favorite chord is or whatever some of it is around the tabloid stuff about being locked up and that sort of thing yeah, so yeah. i think he kind of walks that line quite well yeah so let's listen to it um i'm looking forward to this one because um uh, it's been a while since i've read any of the uh oh, we used to read quite a lot of them in enemy all of the, the pete doherty stories and you know it's quite it's quite odd and weird and i don't think we get that from any musicians these days so i'm looking forward to kind of reminiscing on some of the some of the old thoughts that i had about pete back in the day so yeah, here we go. This is uh, me and Jamie Fullerton recorded in London last week. So yeah, I'm uh, holed up in Dalston with uh, Jamie Fullerton. I think this is quite a fitting location actually to be talking about Pete and the Libertines, given if I think if there was, a, I was saying to you before, if there was a Libertines tour of London, Dalston would definitely be on that route, wouldn't it? Yeah, we're, we're pretty much down in Albion, quite literally at the moment. We're, we're in a basement flat, so we are geographically very much down in Albion. This this location actually reminds me of one of my earliest Libertines experiences when I was studying journalism at City University in Islington. Uh, I was walking down from Stoke Newington at seven in the morning down Essex Road, which is one road away from where we're sat in our Albion-esque basement flat. And I was listening to, I think it was the Libertines second album on my, you know, those classic white iPod headphones. Yeah, yeah. Very yeah. iconic. Very sort of 2000 and maybe I don't know and um, I looked down the street I was passing and I saw Pete Dotty walking around at seven in the morning chomping on an apple uh, and joined by 
a woman in a very large furry coat who I couldn't really see who it was, just sort of the bag of fur. So I gave him a big, I'd never met him before, I was just a, just a fan. I gave him a big thumbs up and thought how interesting it was that I was actually listening to the Libertines album while, yeah, I, was, yeah. while I was passing the lead singer at seven in the morning um, with some woman he'd clearly up, been up all night with. And then I went to the campus that City University, I went into the common room picked them we, we, we got all the newspapers every day because it was a you know it was a journalism course and there was a big page in the daily mirror um picture picture of um kate moss snorting coke in the studio with baby shambles i think quite quite famously yeah yeah and that was clearly the night the day before because i recognized the coat she was wearing yeah. the same and I, and I suddenly clicked that it was it was kate moss i'd seen about 40 40 minutes before um, and then we actually went into a music journalism seminar with Anthony Thornton, who was the previous guest on your podcast. Um, yeah, so th- this this is all sounding quite fitting. So uh... it's all sort of like you wouldn't believe it was unplanned, would you? This conversation and the and these events. So it's interesting you say there that you'd, you'd kind of bumped into Pete before you began writing for the Enemy. So I think just it'd be good to to start by kicking off with how how did you. Um, get into working for that that kind of venerable music publication where obviously mm. I, I I kind of worked uh, for a period of time um, as well I know like me you were you were a, sort of an enemy fanboy for years before you'd read it well reader I'd say yeah yeah. <laughs> um, yeah well the Libertines were really one of the bands that made me want to well maybe decide to be a music journalist I was studying at Cardiff University and it was my first year was 2001 when just the the bands that were coming through the, I guess what you'd call the UK toilet venue circuit, were just. It, I think it later got branded the new new rock revolution. New rock revolution, yeah, which, which no one wanted um, to be branded with. I think so, yeah. But it was it was just after the Strokes were were, were making waves. Yeah, yeah, yeahs were coming through. Um, after that, Interpol, all these, the whole New York thing, and then the wave that followed was. Um, the Libertines were obviously were, were part of as well, and we'd go and see them at the Cardiff Barfly, this grotty venue, just uh, which sadly is now closed. Just held a couple of hundred people. Libs came through. It was the week they were on the cover of Enemy, and they'd been put on the cover, having released I think maybe one single or not even, or maybe just come out. What a waster! And I get along double A side. Um, it just totally fell in love with the band, the music, everything about them the style, the vibe, I guess. And I think that period of time just made me think this is, I, I want that. Having a job documenting this for a living is is definitely what I want to do. And, and rather than spend any more time um, working for my actual degree in psychology, I'm going to spend as much time as possible writing about music and sending in reviews to writers like Mark Beaumont and and Pat Long and... Uh, and Anthony Thornton, I think, probably, to, to try and get there. And the rest, they say, is history. But, um, yeah, the Libs were definitely a, a formative um, formative band. And then there was something very special about them even then on, I guess, what would have been one of their first UK tours, the chemistry between Pete and Carl. And I think what people forget about that time, because Pete went on to have this level of celebrity, which I you know, was very much stimulated by the Kate Moss incidents and, mm. and stimulated by some of your interviews frankly which we'll come yeah. on to you later <laughs> yeah <laughs> I guess so I wouldn't I would never held responsibility for that but um it was very much a dual frontman thing I know I know people know the Libertines is a two frontman thing but in terms of the fame and the profile it was kind of level for a while like Pete and Carl were both considered these um you know the the, the front men the songwriters 
both kind of their in, the indie pinups in their own way, both both good looking mm. guys mm. in their own way, and that very much came across. It was the two guys at the front sharing the mic. The focus was on them. It wasn't just seeing what you know Pete was doing and him being the focus. So I think it was interesting how that dynamic changed later. But at these, at these early tours, that was that was something that I, I remember from uh, really sort of picking up on that that zinging vibe between them. And that's what Anthony Thornton said actually. The first time he saw them, he couldn't work out who the front mm. man was. There wasn't really a front man. Yeah, I remember they came back through Cardiff a few months afterwards and they were supporting Supergrass. Pete was in drag. They didn't do this much with gigs, I think, but um, yeah, Pete was wearing this incredibly short denim skirt. Hmm. He was very skinny at the time. And he passed my friend um, Dave in the in the students' union and just wearing a load of slap makeup, eyeliner and a denim skirt. And I might be making this up or sort of having a falsely generated memory but I think maybe fishnet tights possibly and him saying to Dave like, where's the stage where's the stage and just running towards the stage in a blur of possibly fishnets and denim skirt and slap makeup but they were great they were more <laughs> liberal times as, as baby shambles would go on to say later on indeed indeed supergrass were great as well you forget how good supergrass are sometimes but um, yeah those are my first real experiences of seeing the band live and it was seeing them live that you have that kind of click moment really where it comes together and because it's a moment and it's, it's, it's a moment when you remember these these bands but um and such a special time for bands when they're doing their first tours like that but it only really ever comes once in your career when you have this you know, hype can be good. Hype can be a fun whirlwind experience. A lot of people think hype is something to run away from, I think, mm. in in music, in journalism, in, in the arts. But I, th- I think they just they just embraced the wave and enjoyed it really and thought being a rock and roll being a rock and roll band is about having this hype and this fun and getting on the road and being idolised even on a sort of toilet circuit enemy level. Even. Mm. Um Yeah, and they just really went for it. They were great. So you know, these are sort of your experiences of seeing them as a fan, but then kind of let's fast forward a few years. Um, you know, you, you had that light bulb moment of you didn't want to be a psychologist anymore. You wanted to become a music journalist. Although I don't I, think I ever wanted to be a psychologist. But I, I, I do think that the psychology side probably helped later on with dealing with the likes of Pete Doherty in the way in the way that you did. Yeah, possibly. So, so you work drugs for drugs counselor, maybe. Well, exactly. Yeah. yeah. You worked for Loaded for a, for a period. <laughs> yeah. After, yeah. After uh, after I graduating, staff, I was staff writer of Loaded, which. If you're listening, you know, to, to your thousands of listeners who are maybe not in the UK are familiar with it, um, Loaded was um, a lads mag like Maxim, FHM, back in the day. I was, I was staff writer there for about a year and a half. But we was the same publishing house as Enemy. And we worked very, the office was very close. And I think, I mean, you know, my goal in life was to, was to work for Enemy. Going, working for Loaded was amazing. We went on these crazy strange adventures around the world writing wrestling odds. bears wrestling snakes. wrestling bears that's a whole other podcast i think <laughs> i didn't wrestle a snake actually i kissed uh, i kissed a cobra in uh, in a slum in 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 the outskirts of new delhi that's that's another, that's another story but um yeah i was writing a few reviews for enemy at the time and then left loaded and and joined enemy straight after i i left loaded like almost i mean literally weeks i think i started on the news desk i was a news reporter and as news reporter of enemy certainly at that time your job was just to go out and talk to talk to indie rock stars in car parks at three in the morning and get stories and me naturally being a libertines fan although at this time it was the baby shambles era as you might say um i was naturally naturally attracted to the idea of following pete dotty around car parks at three in the morning and finding stories i guess but it was just when 
baby shambles were, were preparing Shotter's Nation. This is about 2006, 2007. Yeah, so Shotter's Nation came out in 2007. And I think in my first week at NME, I went to see them at the Boogaloo Bar. And it was kind of a bit of a, a, bit of a launch show for Shotter's Nation, playing the new songs. Um, you know, one of those kind of buzzy pub gigs. The Boogaloo is somewhere that I think the Libertines used to spend time and drink. It's a sort of slightly old manish pub in, in North London. Near is it the one where Shane McGowan lives? Shane McGowan was at the gig. Well, there you go. I was very excited because my first week at Enemy, I was watching Baby Shambles and Pete in the pub and Shane McGowan was sort of uh, falling over a chair at the bar in his <laughs> suit, looking quite elegantly, decadently wasted. Uh, and I just thought, this is amazing. <laughs> this is what this is what I wanted. This is good for a job. I thought. So from this point, you then start getting kind of commissions to trail Pete Doherty, and I'd, I kind of want to want to segue into um, kind of one of the big pieces that you did. Mm. It was a cover story. Um, one of the kind of I guess when I say iconic, probably not iconic in in the way that a lot of libertine stuff is iconic, but more um, it captured a moment in Pete's life where he'd been just released from prison. Yeah, this was. I've got the issue in front of me now. You might be able to hear me sort of flicking the papers here. I got this out of my parents' attic uh, the other day. Um, May two, 17th of May 2008. And what's the headline? Pete's latest release. Very clever. Yeah, I didn't come up with that one. But the picture is Pete Dotty in the back of a Renault Clio. The Renault Clio is owned by James Quinton, who was an enemy photographer. He worked with a lot on the Pete Trail, I guess. Now, this event happens very early in the morning on this day. Pete had been in Wormwood Scrubs prison. He was in jail for 29 days, if I remember rightly. He had breached probation. Can't even remember what he was in for. Something to do with drugs. Probably. I mean, you, you would yeah. put money on that, wouldn't you? Yeah, it was. He was he was kind of banging it at the time, famously. And that this was really at, I guess, at the height of his fame as well. So there was a huge paparazzi scrum outside. It was yeah, the year after the whole Kate Moss shenanigans so I went down there, um, I think, oh yeah, I can't remember what time it was, sort of six or seven in the morning outside Wormwood Scrubs. I remember thinking that morning, oh, you know, it's going to take me ages to get there and I don't need to sort of dress particularly well or anything. It's just an early morning thing. So just sort of throwing a hoodie on and not shaving and thinking it's fine. And I guess missing out, missing out a, a part of the incident, cut to um, an image on, in, on, I think it was on Sky News later that was repeated on their website, looped on their website later in that day of me shoving Pete into the back of a Renault Clio, um, sort of bending over and some unfavourable images of the, um, basically my arse crack <laughs> on, uh, on, on rolling, rolling, rolling 24 hour news. I, I did find a video of where Pete's being interviewed outside the prison and you're there. Yeah. We'll put the link in the uh, description to this podcast and on the social media so yeah. fans fans can relive this this magic moment of yeah. Pete being released from prison. There was a bit of a scrum. Well, yeah, we should, we should explain exactly what happened. But yeah, he was, released, he was released from jail, so he came out of Wormwood wearing his suit with his rosary bees jangling around his neck, uh, you know, prison bags slung over his shoulder. And he came out and his, his ride wasn't there. It was very, very early in the morning. So it was this very strange situation where he'd come out and he'd sort of said a slightly frosty hello to the paparazzi scrum and then just sort of looked around and was like, where, well, where, you know, where's my ride? What do I do now? And this strange, almost standoffy situation. And of course, the, all the journalists there started asking him some questions. He showed a certificate saying that he was clean of drugs. He unfolded the certificate and said, you know, I wanted to show you all this. I got this, um, you know, went went through some kind of program in jail, and I'm now clean. So he showed that to the to the paps, and then he said, "Oh, my ride isn't here." So all everyone started sort of fighting to try and 
get give Peter lift so they could you know get the story as such and enemy being I guess a more sympathetic media outlet than perhaps the mirror or the sun yeah or Mail Online or whatever it was at the time, um, he decided that he would take a lift with us. So James James Quinton, the photographer, went and I basically said, James, go and get your car now. And you know, five minutes later, he came back. I shoved Pete in the back of the car. We veered off. I'm sure there was a, I'm sure there was an extremely loud tire screech. Always is in these kind of situations, right? And um, the paparazzi started following us, trailing us. I can't remember how many cars there were, but it was all it was all quite exciting and cartoonish, really. So we would we would. Not speeding as such, I'd never say that and get James into trouble. Yeah, he was, he was, he was just at the limit. We're going exactly the exactly the speed limit, um, very safely through residential streets near Wilma Scrubs Prison, trying to lose the paps. And then we we spoke to Pete spoke to his manager on the phone, told him where we were. And we pulled up. There was one paparazzi left, and it's a strange, awkward situation where we were parked up, and the paparazzi guy was kind of just about, I don't know, maybe like 30 yards behind us, just quietly taking pictures in this very quiet residential street. Um, but during, during the ride, I said to Pete, oh, so I've got to do my job and do an interview. And um, I interviewed him for nine minutes. He was very open, chatted about his experience, which we can talk about the specifics um, in a second, I guess. But um, James took a couple of pictures after he'd safely applied the handbrake and, park, <laughs> and parked up in a, uh, in a in a parking zone. And... Pete's manager turned up, gave him a big hug. Pete got in, his manager's car drove off. We both drove back to the enemy office. I think we were still the first in. Yeah, I told the editor, Connor McNicholas, that we we probably got the next week's cover sorted. Um, but yeah, it was an interesting interesting time for Pete. It's not, it wasn't the first time he'd been in jail. Um, he handed me his prison diary as well. Said, you can print this. So we... we sort of, well not photocopy, but scanned that in the office <laughs> and got that got that online. He'd spent a lot of his time drawing pictures. Um, I think our art editor at Enemy described them as rather pony. <laughs> Which I don't think is a compliment. Was that, that not Joe totally, Frost? It was Joe Frost, the art editor of, of Enemy at the time, very talented guy. Um, yeah, so that was his artistic assessment of, of, of Pete's drawing. But, you know, it's, it was docu- documenting a moment in time rather than trying to be a particularly... Um, important art piece or whatever but I think I remember I remember opening the prison diary and and a stained foil dropped out which kind of polo mints probably something like that I think um, you've been been keeping potato salad fresh or something it didn't really smell like like um, polo mints it was something I was completely unfamiliar with of course (laughs) but um, yeah that gave a little bit of insight into what Pete was doing on his first night in jail although we have to stress um, probably for for libel reasons that um he genuinely did get clean after the first couple of days. So at the time, NME would they would give little previews of stories if we had a news angle to newspapers in exchange for them kind of promoting the issue or whatever. So um, I think one of the I think it was the Daily Star got got some of the copy from the cover feature that I wrote and ran it in the the, the next Wednesday's newspaper the same day that NME was out and you know they had to sort of put a cover of enemy in there whatever and credit us and they mentioned that Pete had uh, faked his urine tests in jail he said uh, you know boasting about having his mates um, give him files of piss so he could <laughs> erroneously so he could falsely pass his um, his drugs test and they just read the story completely wrong he admitted that he had done this previously you know in, in 
prior to being in jail when he was, as part of his um, probation rules, he had to take drug tests and they just hadn't read it properly. You know, I mean, I'm constantly surprised by the lack of diligence in tabloid journalism these days, but for some reason the Daily Star um, journalists read that wrong. Um, so there was some talk of maybe um, Pete suing Daily Star after that. But I think, I don't know, to sort of... Pete Dotty t- suing tabloid newspapers, where do you even start? You know, it's yeah. like that never really came, came, came to anything. That would be a full-time um, job. I think we're, we're going to go into some specifics of the feature, but I think yeah. the only other thought I had on this really was, I mean, it probably it's no surprise actually that there was no one waiting for him outside, but you think of, of a major music star being released from prison. How ridiculous is it that there was no one from his team there waiting to pick him up? I mean, you got a scoop as a result of this chaos. Yeah. In reality, I mean, that, that's just unheard of, surely. There's always been an element of a, a huge, huge element of chaos around the Libertines and Pete and the world around them and such. I don't, you know, it's not as straight. I, I imagine it's not as, as straightforward gig as just managing Little Mix or something. And I guess, <laughs> that, I guess that works both ways to, to both ways to a certain extent, to a certain extent. But yeah, I would, I would think, set your alarm when your client's gonna, <laughs> you're gonna, gonna get released from Wormwood Scrubs. But um, yeah, it sort of worked out best for us I guess I guess so, so you, you had nine minutes with him so what what nuggets <laughs> did you did you manage to to get out of him in that well he was just completely open and honest as he often is really I think he's he's never really you know with Pete Dotty all you ever really need to do is a Q&A I don't think you need to be a particularly talented journalist to actually interview him just everything he says is, is honest and open and interesting he's engaged in the art of the interview he wants to make it funny and interesting and come across as as a as an intriguing rock star to an extent, because so, he was um, an intelligent guy. That's what I think. Yeah, he's a very intelligent guy, and I think with that, I've always just asked him very direct questions, um, and he's always just given fairly direct answers. And I was asking him about uh, drugs because failing drugs test was one of the reasons that he was sentenced, which is something I put to him in the in the nine minutes in the back of the car, and he initially said, "Oh, six times out of the last time I I tested clean," and then he just. Um, Kind of admitted that he was telling slight porkies and said no, I was uh, I was banging it and it being it being heroin prior to being in jail. So he was in a bit of a he was very open about it being in a bit of a bad place prior to um, prior to being in jail. But actually, he came out full of full of genuine optimism. Really, I mean, I think you know as anyone would be after spending twenty nine in jails, he was in a great positive positive mood. But he seemed genuinely proud of himself for, for getting clean and optimistic and optimistic about writing music he said he wanted to do a new baby shambles album and just getting out into the, to the world again so um yeah i think he was it it was a it was a positive time obviously things changed later in in uh, in his career and life as they tend to go up and down but um yeah overall it wasn't it wasn't as dark as some of the uh, some of the pete interviews i i have done he listened to a lot to. I remember he, he said he listened to "Free as a Bird" by the Beatles. That sort of. I think that was a kind of remastered song they did mm. long, long, long after. It's about nineteen ninety-seven. Yeah, it's a great song. Remember, yeah. He used to listen to that every day. So, so that was his soundtrack to um, to to, uh, to Wormwood's Wormwood Scrubs. Weirdly, I remember as well. Um, I had a flat. I used to live in Holloway Road, and I had a flatmate called Angela, and she worked in the prison. Um, I can't remember what her, what her job was, and I remember when he was in there, her saying that. Um, 
yeah, she saw him in there and he was asking her for pool cues to play pool. So I guess we could just imagine him playing pool while listening to Free as a Bird by the Beatles. So that's all a bit of Chaz and Dave, isn't it? <laughs> it's Snooker Loopy. <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, you, you said that this wasn't the darkest time you've interviewed Pete, but still quite, I guess, a dark time being released from prison. So I want to kind of fast forward to one of your next kind of key interviews with Pete, which would have been around the time the Libertines reform, which I guess when you think about it, you know, Pete's lowest moments are probably being thrown out of the libs and being chucked in jail. His high points are definitely, I think, yeah. when he got back with mm. uh, with Carl, John and, and Gary. Um, so, yeah. 2010. So we're fast-forwarding kind of two years down, down the line here, uh, and I thought it was interesting looking at this feature that you were basically sort of bearing witness to them all being in the same room um, for the first time, I think it was in five years. Yeah, it was a strange situation. And again, with the Libertines, it's just herding cats, I think, to to an extent. The band had split up, as we know, um, which I think you probably talked about it with with Anthony. Um, I don't want to talk about drugs too much, but that really was the main reason for, for the band splitting up and the disintegration of, of Carl and Pete's relationship. And Carl saying he... Pete's not allowed back in the band till he's till he's clean, and that not happening, and that potentially ending or at least pausing the Libertines. So there'd been rumours of reunions for years. There'd been Pete and Carl had got on stage a couple of times, I think, back and forth. But they'd been in, I'd, I'd seen them in the Rhythm Factory actually, which is a sort of grotty old venue in Whitechapel that was seen to some of the very very early Libertines gigs, and uh, Carl, Pete, and um, Gary, the drummer, played with Drew McConnell from Baby Shambles on bass because John Hassel, the Libertines bassist, lived in Denmark. And it was, a, it was kind of a spontaneous thing anyway. But that was the closest we'd come to a Libertines reunion. Very exciting night. I think they came on stage at like two in the morning or something. It's, um, I think the Rhythm Factory in Whitechapel is probably the only place in the world where if a compare, as he did that night, shouted the phrase in the microphone, I can report that Carl Barat is in the building. Um, the response was like uh, Queen coming out at Wembley at Pan- Live Aid or Pan- something. Pandemonium. Yeah. Absolute pandemonium. I just thought, I'm, I'm at home, I'm with my people. <laughs> but um, yeah, so they've been sort of, you know, been these, these events had always been very spontaneous. They'd been great. They'd been, you know, two in the morning in some, yeah, in a grotty Whitechapel uh, bar, I guess you'd call it. This was had to have a level of organisation. It was a deal they'd signed a deal to reform for the Reading and Leeds festivals. For you know, it's a huge, huge money deal, and they had to they had to get it together. So it was organised that they would convene in London for this NME photo shoot and interview. So we were literally present when they were in a room for the first time in how, what was it? How many years? Five years. Five I years. Think it was yeah. Um, so we met in this extremely large house in somewhere in West London which is hired out as a as a um, kind of a photo studio but sort of you know elegantly chipped uh, <laughs> paint paints on the walls and big oak beds and things quite libertine-esque goods you know it, it was it was it was a beautiful house and John was the first to arrive I think in typical fashion all the libertines would late Pete was second. He came two hours, only two hours late. So that mm. was fine. That's pretty. T- that's pretty uh, punctual for Pete. I guess so. Yeah, yeah. As the as the uh, as, the, as the stereotype goes, um, I can't remember who came next after that. But um, 
Yeah, they, they went off to the pub together to have a few drinks and lubricate their relationships again. And it was literally the, uh, the first time the Libertines had been together as a foursome in, in, that, in that many years. Then came back and did an enemy cover photo shoot with Roger, with Roger Sargent, who did... Well, he was kind of the, I guess, the unofficial or official even um, Libertines photographer. He was... Well, you know, very good friends, Dante Thornton, and did yeah. Anthony bound, talked about yeah, him on, did, on, the, on the podcast. They, 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 they co co they co made this bound together biography of the Libertines with with Roger's fantastic photographs, and he photographed the second Libertines album cover as well. So we did this. Um, we did this. We did this cover shoot. All went very well. Classic band shot up against up up against the wall. Pete and Carl in the middle, looking at camera. Um, and then I, we went to the pub, which was overlooking the Thames. Got a bone to pick with the subs on this. The Libertines back together for Reading and Leeds. The yeah. first interview in five years. Not the most creative headline you'd, you'd ever read. It's not quite Pete's latest release, is it? No, but considering that they hadn't done any interviews at all or even been back together for five years, I think it's kind of okay. It was a genuine, it was a genuine event. And I remember at the time we were trying to keep it under wraps until the issue came out. Because there was still a lot of... There's still a lot of media attention on whether they would get back. The, the tabloids were still interested, and a couple of days before the um, the the magazine came out, there was a picture of the band together. I think Pete and Carl in the boozer where we did the interview from that chat, which before the interview when they went and had that first chat, and someone had papped them from across the Thames. <laughs> it looked like a long lens kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. And um, of Pete and Carl hugging. And so it started all the speculation that they might get back together for Reading and Leeds. I think that's really interesting because, you know, it was the tabloids actually reporting on a musical issue. It wasn't really anything to do with all this, you know, models or drugs or this, that and the other. It was just in the gossipy pages, the Libertines might be getting back together and playing gigs and festivals and stuff. So I think that's, that was really interesting at the time for for a rock band when things were supposed to be moving away from rock and these people weren't necessarily considered, you know, rock people weren't necessarily considered characters in that, that kind of press world. So that was kind of, it was kind of cool that they had, they, they you know, they, they were still breaching, breaching these two worlds. This, I guess, what enemy would consider itself is a more not underground as such but you know an alternative world of music and, and the mainstream one as well so you, 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 heard, you heard of them back from the pub eventually they did the photo no, shoot no yeah they did the photo shoot we went, we went back to the pub and it was uh, usually I like to interview people just one on one or, or two on two to just get a better thing but it's just it was interesting getting them all together and the, the dynamic there was something going on with John Hassel the bassist he'd they didn't reveal it completely in the interview, in the interview. he'd said something to Pete um, which Pete said, I want to ask John about later. So I don't know what it was, some kind of unresolved issue. But the rest of it was them um, just sort of cautiously talking about getting their friendships back together and looking towards Reading and Leeds, really. And it's, 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 it was an interesting dynamic because they were talking really to each other almost for the first time as well during, mm. during this interview, as well as to the press. So I, I think it's the tone is really quite different to the early Libertines interviews, the sort of bombastic Pete interviews later on. It's a bit more sort of soft and cautious and reflective without being particularly deep, I think, because it was just all so new and fresh. And it was all about just the, you know, lighting that firework and announcing that they were coming back and getting their initial thoughts. But I, I like it because it's a nice snapshot for that, really. It doesn't have to be the most deep, in-depth 
delve into the psyches of these individuals. It was just capturing really that moment. So. But I think you did pick a few scabs in this interview around uh, the fact the last time the Libertines had played at Reading and Leeds, Anthony Rossomando, yeah. uh, who Carl ended up going on to form Dirty Pretty Things with, uh, had stepped in for Pete and Carl. Yeah. I, I get the sense from from the Q and A that mm. Carl wasn't exactly keen to talk about. Yeah. It. So I asked. I said the Libertines played at Reading and Leeds in two thousand and four with Anthony Rossomando, who was he was in Dirty Pretty Things, and he kind of replaced Pete in the live incarnation of the Libertines when Pete was kicked out of the band. He was a guitar tech, wasn't he, originally? Oh, yeah, I'm not sure. From the states, I think, isn't he? Yeah. Anyway, um, and Carl said, "Oh, you had to bring that up, didn't you?" It wasn't the Libertines without Peter, it was the songs. And then I, um, there was a nice quote from Carl, I asked, I said, well, I said, is going back to the, to the festival with Pete important? And Carl said, nostalgia is a thing of the past. I don't know, that, that can't be his original quote, can it? That's too, that's quite, but it's very good. Is that, is that a bit of dream weaving on your part? I don't know. No, I don't think so. I think that was a genuine quote. So yeah, there, there are these issues, I, I guess. And also, I think what's interesting is there are so many other bands and projects and things that the various members are involved with there's always the issue of conflict and I always wondered when the Libertines which is clearly the biggest thing that any of these guys did musically and in their careers was was announced or was taking up time how the members of the other bands would would feel like Baby Shambles was you know it started off with this as this side project um, with a you know looser collective of musicians in London quite a strange Scarborough Steve and that mob well, I think it, maybe it was, they used to have Seb Rockford, this amazing jazz drummer in the band. He wouldn't really think would be a Baby Shambles kind of rock player, mm. but they used to they used to play together. And you know, Pat Walden was in there. Pat Walden, a great guitarist actually. Who, um, yeah, and he was replaced by Mick Whitnell later, who's going to be a long longer term band member. But I asked him about this because you know you, I wonder how the members of Baby Shambles must have felt when they see, you know, oh, so I guess this is what Pete's doing and how much money he's. Pete's making doing for the next six months um, so yeah that's an issue I think Pete suggested that um, Mick Whitnell the guitarist had a few potentially had a few issues with it the quote here was that um, uh, being in baby shambles there's nothing worse and I know it winds Mick up than people down the front going libertines libertines <laughs> play death on the stairs <laughs> and it always leaves a bad feeling inevitably he says um, but unfortunately, fortunately, I'm surrounded by good mates. So I guess there's that issue there. And I always, I remember, um, actually, that's reminded me, I went to another Rhythm Factory gig. It would have been around the same time that there was this sort of almost Libertines reunion because they played a series of shows there. And Pat Walden came back and just guested on a couple of songs. And there'd definitely been a huge amount of animosity between Pat Walden and Mick Whitnell, and I think. And they'd said some things about, Pat had said some things about Mick, which were actually unprincipled for for legal reasons um just a couple of days before they did this he didn't he didn't know how to play death on the stairs being one of them probably (laughs) that's that's libelous yeah yeah Yeah. and um yeah and i remember pat coming on and sort of like doing sort of dueling guitars with mick and and they're looking very very friendly and like not 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 clashing guitars but when they sort of um, you know you both play riff together and like stand and pose status quo yeah that kind of that kind of vibe so glam rock fine v's (laughs) kind of thing and um, I guess at that moment on stage, you just have to get caught up in the music and all, all be friends and get, well, get, Pink, on, get Pink, on together. Pink Floyd famously did Live Eight, uh, as, yeah. as did Pete, actually. And Pink Floyd hated each other and still hate each other, yeah. but, you know, came together for the greater good. Mm. 
I remember during, I think it was another gig, maybe even, it might have even been the same gig, it was definitely the Rhythm Factory, Mick Whitnell um, smashing up his guitar manically um, right after the gig because he was annoyed of something to do with the sound levels or something, <laughs> something I think, which is quite an un Mick thing to do really. So he's, quite, quite a, he's quite a nice nature, he's a nice guy, I've, you know, I've met him a bunch of times, he's a good guy, I did not, not a guitar smashery kind of guy I thought, but um I, th- I think to, re- to return to your original point, though, yeah. I mean, Baby Shambles by the Shotters Nation tour, because I remember I went to review them, were playing the arenas. Now, Yeah, I went, to, I went to see them at Wembley Arena. It was a, it was a strange experience. And you, you go from almost probably within weeks of seeing Baby Shambles in some pub and, yes, seeing guitars getting smashed up and people waiting at two in the morning to see if Carl Barat is in the building and this, that and the other. I don't know, if actually, if it was the same kind of time period, but that was certainly going on over this period of years. Um, and then they played yeah they had they headlined Wembley Arena um didn't I, sell it out because they didn't sell didn't, out the Manchester didn't sell it out but I remember it being pretty pretty busy and it sort of had all the strange trappings of an arena gig there were there were guys outside selling plastic rosary beads like <laughs> a sort of you know it was tacky merch you know you get the tacky knockoff merch yeah, outside yeah. these gigs it's usually like i don't know a sort of knockoff um one direction fan that you wave and yeah sort of brush your massive foam with hand with the band's name on or whatever harry styles's silhouette on a foam hand or something but um yeah there are all these all these sort of geezers shouting rosary bees for the shambles <laughs> rosary bees for the shambles and like people just people were buying them just like sort of placing them over the necks and yeah baby sh- yeah so baby shambles uh, you know the idea was i think the idea was for their label to take the great music of the, you know Pete and the band were writing and kind of harness the power of his celebrity as well at the time and turn them into a really really big act and get them performing more professionally and 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 I guess turn them into the band that the Libertines were really on the route to be um it's I remember around the second album the Libertines played a couple of shows at Brixton in London and I didn't I didn't go to them I was living in Cardiff at the time I think and Alan McGee briefly managed them Alan McGee being the guy who discovered Oasis, head of Creation Records. Records. Yeah. Yeah. And I remember him saying in an interview at the time, someone just needed to sort of grab them and say, you are a really, really big band and we need to do these, whatever it was, three nights, two nights, three nights at Brixton, sell it out and be amazing shows and sort of, you know, sort of tell the world and start acting like a big band who can play these big shows. So I think it sort of, was slingshotting from that really it never never really happened with baby shambles for various reasons they're just not they're just not suited to playing live in a, in an arena the songs aren't the whole idea of baby shambles is that every gig is different at every every time you you know every time you go and see them it's complete unpredictability and not just because of you know supposed unreliability or willy you know people sort of think of Pete and it's like, and it used to be will he turn up won't he turn up and yeah, to be fair that was that was you know he did he did used to cancel gigs he would be late but just musically like they were they never they never sound checked well adam fight the drummer used to go and sound check on his own i remember <laughs> um i remember being with baby shambles in paris and um just in the holiday inn and Adam was like, oh, I've got to go and get go a taxi now to the sound check. I was like, well, you're going on your own. He's like, yeah, yeah. I'm just, I think, no, I think maybe Drew, the bassist, went as well. But The professional member. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, they were literally just sounding. And I was like, oh, is Pete going to go? He's like, nah, I'm not bothering. But, um, and then Pete turned up in the Holiday Inn with, um, with a kitten he just bought. Baby Shambles in arenas never really felt kind of right. 
But I don't think the Libertines ever did. I guess they do now, don't they? Now that they're, they're reformed. They played down yeah. in Pali a, few, a couple of years. Yeah. Back. yeah, I did go to um, the reunion gigs right after this interview. Really, well, the, 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 this interview was building up to the uh, band were building up to, to playing Reading and Leeds. They're playing second from top at Reading and Leeds, so it's a huge slot. They played two shows before to warm up, I guess, in the Kentish Town Forum, which is about two, two and a half thousand capacity place. Mm. First night was billed as a friends and family gig, about 500 people. It's quite a lot of, quite a lot of friends and family. I'm not, well, I, you know, I wouldn't have considered myself a, a friend as such. I guess I was friendly. To well, it well, depends with the Libertines what you determine a friend. It's often people who find you things, I think, when you're in the Libertines. Yeah, helpful people. Yeah, helpful people, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, they played this show and it felt a bit more like a live rehearsal. It didn't really catch on fire, as it was never really supposed to, I guess. But just amazing again to see them live on stage. I was going to say, I was about to sort of automatically say it was amazing to see the chemistry between Pete and Carl, but actually that gig, it wasn't totally there. It was more, it honestly felt like being in a, in a, in a rehearsal. Even just to the extent they were just you know looking at their guitars and seeing what they were playing. Just concentrating, trying to be professional, really. It was a really good show. It was interesting. But the next night, they played, you know, they'd sold tickets to fans. And it was honestly one of the best Libertines gigs I'd, I'd ever been to. They played amazingly. They opened with Horror Show, I think, which is just such a fantastic sort of stabby opener. Feels like a statement of intent. The, um, you know, the really hardcore Libertine fans had got the tickets. It was two and a half thousand tickets. It wasn't just a big guest list fest or something. It was proper fans who had just been waiting for this moment of release. I remember the towers of beer being thrown. Remember that video around the World Cup of some kind of fan zone that went yes, viral yeah, 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 yeah. when England were playing and scored. I can't remember which which game it was, but they scored and these um, a huge sort of waves of beer were thrown into the air that made this amazing video. And someone worked out how much like the value of the beer that had just been thrown away or something. It was just sucking the fun out of the moment. I thought, yeah, yeah, yeah. but um, yeah, they reminded me of that. Just incredible electric atmosphere Amy Winehouse turned up she came and stood on this it was sort of a balcony area but it wasn't like at the back balcony it was kind of a sort of um, on display balcony area I can't remember exactly that in the venue so everyone could see Amy in this sort of like sectioned off VIP balcony with about three massive heavies and they started I can't remember what it was but they started some kind of chant it wasn't anything nasty or anything but it was just Amy Winehouse or some, you know, something yeah, yeah, yeah. like that. Some something that was kind of funny. Thing, yeah. You know what she's like? I think she was like throwing drinks back at them <laughs> and stuff, watching the show. And then she sort of stormed off after about three songs, I think. But I read, um, I just read Matt Wilkinson, the, enemy, the former Enemy Writers um, report of the Reading and Leeds shows. And apparently they were partying with Amy. Apparently, apparently according to, to Matt's article, after those shows... Um, in a in a hotel afterwards, they were either playing board games with Tom from the Enemy, or trashing the place with Amy Winehouse. It was one of those two things. Um, I think, yeah, I don't, can't. I'm not sure which one of those two I'd rather do. We'd rather be. It depends what the board game is, I guess. Yeah. Um, um, if it's Boggle, Boggle with Boggle with Tom from the Enemy, and the Libertines, and the Libertines, yeah, yeah, coming down after the gig. But yeah, it was it was amazing, and it it just it just there was so much expectation. And so much fear that they might not pull it off after all those years, and just that that magic and that moment in time. You know, it was it, the Libertines have always felt like a moment in time. Those first shows, and 
that chemistry is that the, the, the chemistry between band members and friends and lovers and anything is something that very 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 rarely lasts even years let alone you know a lifetime and for that to sort of click back at that at that gig at the forum we we sort of knew it was all going to be all right and the Reading and Leeds were going to be great and that the Libertines were really back as the, as the Libertines whether they ever did anything again after that or not mm. but um yeah it was um it was a, it was a great experience then I went up to Leeds festival for enemy um afterwards and I don't have as vivid memories of, of that show as I do of the Kentish Town Forum gig because that was so amazing but I just remember it being great and not as exciting as the Forum because I think you know it's the smaller the better with the Libertines in terms of venues just getting that excitement and the you know the crowd interaction but um then totally doing the job and nailing it and uh I think as we mentioned earlier on the podcast, I think that was the point where they went properly overground in terms of proper mainstream, yeah. being a real kind of mainstream um, concern. Um, but it, it's an interesting dynamic, isn't it, when bands come back? I always think it's almost good for your career to split up and let people realise what they're missing. And I think Libertines split up before they, certainly before they got to that level. I don't think it was set in stone that they would have necessarily got I mean I, I think they probably would have got to that level anyway if they carried on but by the virtue of them being away it just builds up this expectation and it makes it such a um, it makes it such an event you can build these bands on bigger slots than they, they necessarily would have through that natural progression I remember when Rage Against the Machine were away for many years when they came back they were just automatic headliners I think before that they weren't actually playing particularly huge slots it's great for your career. I always think of Primal Scream because Primal Scream have had this. I mean, they've like to their credit, like the Rolling Stones, they just kept going. You know, releasing albums every couple of years. I love, I love that never stop attitude. Mm. But um, I always think, I, I, they definitely had a number of years where they just weren't playing particularly huge gigs. Like their UK tours, they sort of played the Hammersmith Apollo or something. And sometimes not even. I might be wrong about this, but I think they I remember them playing it like not even you know selling it out or something. And I always thought that if they just split up you know, for five years and then just came back that it would just be this enormous, massive event. Like, oh, yeah, yeah. we've got the primal screen come back or something. And, this is why you need to get into band management, probably. Yeah, just force forcing your clients to just split up. To not see <laughs> each other. Yeah, so, um, yeah, it's, it, it was interesting, but it just, the Libertines, when the, the moment the Libertines reformed, they were bigger than they had ever been during their incarnation. I think that's a really interesting dynamic. It creates a lot of pressure for them, I guess, because in a sense, it's not, totally natural it's you know the, the whole idea of a career in anything in a, in a band's life in, in anyone's life is that it, it builds towards something and I guess you can kind of see these things coming and prepare for them a bit so it is a strange thing to, to come back after the you know to be, be doing a an interview for a magazine the moment literally the moment you, you get back in the room together and then suddenly be playing the biggest shows of your whole life Interesting you mentioned they'd never been as big as this. I remember that the press conference that they did to announce this reunion. Oh, in the Boogaloo that was. Was in the Boogaloo. Yeah. And it was like, like it was it was like streamed live on like evening news. I think it was Channel Five News to be fair. I think BBC One uh, and ITV skipped on it. But Channel Five, you know, the, the, it was still live broadcast on, on terrestrial TV that the band were back. Yeah. I love that they did a press conference in the Boogaloo bar in, <laughs> in North London as well. Just a sort of enjoyably grotty old man's kind of pub. That's great. It's very libertine, I thought. I remember, yeah. 
So I think just to fast forward past the um, past the, the triumphant reunion, you know, it was a triumphant reunion. Yeah, absolutely. But then, yeah. But then, as with all things libertines, it, it did kind of fizzle out. But I want to kind of move this to the next time you interviewed Pete. Yeah. Uh, so this was a couple of years on um, from the reunion. It was back to kind of being solo, Pete, and he'd, he'd moved to Paris. He was living in Paris with two ballerinas. Yeah, I saw this. I forgot about all, this what? until I read the until I reread the interview this morning and reminded myself. Um, at, 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 there was a period during when he was playing solo gigs. He had these two ballerinas who would come during I don't know one of the sort of quieter songs and sort of pirouette around on the edge of the stage. But the thing is, I mean, I'm certainly no expert in ballet, but they didn't seem particularly well coordinated. They didn't hmm. seem to be actually dancing in time to anything. And, I mean, for some reason, he'd just struck a, up a friendship with these very beautiful young 20-something women, I think, and um, wanted them to be part of his live show. But, you know, it's, it was kind of a fun quirk, really. But, um, yeah, he, they, they lived in this flat with him in Paris. But we hadn't spoken to Pete for a couple of years. I think he'd sort of... The implication, as we understood it, was that he'd sort of slipped into the, the, the darkness that is periodically haunted him throughout his throughout his life and he hadn't really been on the radar I guess we hadn't spoken to Pete in a long time there was a lot to catch up on and although he wasn't releasing music as such it just seemed like a you know just we were overdue a catch-up so I went and had a pint with uh, Pete's manager and just said that you know like I know you're not promoting a record this that and the other but there's just so much to catch up on we're enemy you know Pete's always been an enemy we just want to do a catch-up interview and he agreed to, to organize it and said just just come over to Paris so I went over on the Eurostar um, was expecting to interview Pete Dotty and I was told that he was asleep and that he was going to be asleep for a very very long time <laughs> and it turned out he slept for the next 24 hours <laughs> and it just this strange bizarre scenario I just kept being told that yeah, when he goes to sleep, he can sleep for 12 hours and this, that, and the other. And I just, I didn't ask too many questions. I didn't particularly want to ask too many questions. I was like, okay, um, I'll interview him when he's ready, when he's had his sleep or whatever it is. Yeah, he's, yeah. Whatever it is I'm being told that he's doing. His stupor. Yeah, when well, he... I don't, I mean, who knows? Who knows? But um, so I ended up having to sort of book myself in a, an extra night in the hotel and sort of delay my holiday for a day, which I was supposed to go on straight afterwards. Um, but then eventually we went round the corner from his flat and sat in a restaurant and I met Pete outside this very nice little French restaurant where he was drinking brandy and having a beer. Um, he was, yeah, he was in a very chipper mood. He was, um, you know, it was a sunny day. He was buying everyone drinks and clinking glasses. Um, like physically he didn't look in particularly particularly great shape he was um had the classic sort of you know shake hands and notice the scars and and bruises on the hands and things so it's sort of you do have a bit of bit of concern when you uh see those kind of signs but we went back to his apartment which was um i'm gonna again create a bit of residual noise here and flick through the issue um yeah i mean his, his apartment was as dotty-esque as you would expect sort of battered battered diaries everywhere antique furniture um a picture of a picture of Amy Winehouse in some kind of like snow globe item yeah, type thing. Yeah. Um, she's doing her eyeliner in a, a photograph. 
Interesting fact about that, that picture. I'm looking at a picture of NME now with this Amy Winehouse sort of trinket. We actually, um, well, not we, but uh, the, the photo desk photoshopped out a syringe from that shot which I didn't realise until I found out later. I, I didn't actually notice it or see it, but um, the photographer, Matthew Zazo, the French photographer who we were working with, um, yeah, was just sort of taking taking these shots while I was interviewing Pete in the in the next room and um, of, of you know, his house and his trinkets. And yeah, they, they shopped out a syringe. I don't... Could have been something perfectly innocent. You could have been having a blood test or something. Maybe like an ear infection or something. Yeah, yeah. yeah I don't know. But I think it's just, again, an indication of the, the world of the Libertines and... And peace, and this this carefree attitude where you're doing an interview, which is organised through through the management, and it's all kind of an above, you know, a planned thing. And you walk into the flat, and there's just a, a syringe lying on the table next to the thing, and it's just that that's not really seen as a particularly big issue. I think, um, I think, whatever you think about that lifestyle and the implications of that, I just, it, it you know, in, in a weird way, it's one of the things I always liked about following the story of, of, of the band and Pete is that this, you know, not giving a fuck attitude, mm. this complete... The, the, this, the brazenness of it. The brazenness, the complete lack of foresight mm. of what, you know, just, just, you could have just opened a drawer and put the syringe in it and put it away or something. But just this total carefree attitude towards it, which I think is, is one of the things that really was reflected in their music as well, but just made it a real... A real ride following well, that story uh, that you didn't uh, get with other bands. A cynic might even say that his uh, his um, his assistants placed it there purposefully <laughs> for the shoot. But anyway, um, yeah, they've got maybe got annoyed when they saw the photo and we shopped it out. <laughs> exactly. But well, um, I think just briefly, um, in the in the interview was was a very revealing interview. He was very open. I don't want to talk too much about you know. I know you have to talk to, to, to the element. You have to talk about drugs with Pete, but he did talk a lot about drugs and he talked about taking heroin and actually during the interview he was smoking something from some kind of pipe who knows what it was he blew a bit of it in my face by mistake during the end of the end of the interview and it gave me a very very strange buzz which I'd never experienced before so I don't think it was um I don't I would imagine it wasn't something that was legal but who knows yeah it it wasn't vaping was it he wasn't vaping but I wrote about all of this and it all went in the feature and it all went in the interview and I spoke to Pete's manager like a week afterwards and they were just saying how much they loved the article and hmm. I remember them saying oh yeah the, the photos were amazing he looks like a sort of 1950s Hollywood star or something <laughs> and like um, there was no mention of you know, <laughs> the, the strange substances that he was smoking in a pipe and I went to a gig at Brixton Jam which is a fairly small venue in, in, in South London I think the week after the issue, issue came out and I saw Pete briefly and he was like, "Oh, what are you? What, what sort of you know nudging me on the shoulder and going, oh, look at you, put it writing about that strange thing I was smoking in 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 in, in the pipe. Oh, you are naughty, aren't you?" And then just like <laughs> back to the bar or something. <laughs> just just doesn't care. Just thinks it's kind of funny. But um, yeah, again at the time, I, th- I think just an insight into the that creative mind. Really, he had so many things on the go. He was he was writing a novel by hand, which he right. showed, which he showed me. Writing music, of course, you know, he did sort of built up a big cache of cache of songs that he wanted to do something with as well. Um, 
and yeah, that was that was just his base, really. I think you've mentioned that this was quite a dark period in Pete's life, not just from a, a chemical point of view, which I know we've gone over kind of a number of times, but um, <laughs> chemical point of view. But yeah. you know, but 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 also, um, he was implicated in some quite um, well, serious in, criminal situations associated with, yeah, associated with. Um, you know, there was the death of Mark Blanco, who was an actor who turned up at a party that Pete and some of Pete's associates were at, and had ultimately. Yeah. Fallen. Um, from it was the, the, the flat of Paul Roundhill, who was this very, very shady character. Liter- literary agent. We're, we're doing it. Literary in the agent. Comments. I think in in the article, Pete talks about how I think the last time he saw it, Paul Roundhill was running through Camden Town, wearing a string vest with hip hop written ac- or painted across it. I don't know how mm. you paint on a string mm. vest, but and um, wearing a judge's wig. <laughs> being chased by Liverpool football fans. <laughs> That's the kind of character we're, we're talking about here. Yeah, yeah and, and if you wanted to read more about Paul Roundhill, he's one of those characters that, <laughs> who, who wouldn't? On, that appears on Libertine, the whole world of libertines.org, which, to be honest, we're not going to delve into those Website, kind of yeah. murky um, sort of depths. But I think the interesting quote in this from me around the, the Mark Blanco situation was Pete's quote is, I am ashamed I stepped over the body and legged it. Oh, God. Yeah, I mean, I, mean, I think... There was CCTV footage of Pete quite literally stepping over the, 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 the slumped body of Mark Blanco after he'd fallen from the balcony. And, um, yeah, that's that's not a particularly good look to have on, on, on YouTube when you're trying to deny um, a, a level of involvement with someone's death with you uh, stepping over the over the body. So, I, yeah, that's that's something that's that's really been tied to him in terms of associating him with the uh with the, with the case and mark uh, blanco's family have have really been um i guess well that you know they're, they're still searching for the truth of what happened as anyone who's had such a such a tragic loss would be and they were very um really really very put out by pete sort of just carrying on and having this celebrity music career and appearing in magazines like enemy and sort of being being viewed as this i don't know whether you'd say role model but you know this sort of fated star and this that and the other which um i can completely understand and, and be I'll, very I'll very, be diff- very very difficult to see i think this was probably the point for me in my fandom of of kind of pete and the libertines where i think my my opinion started to turn a little bit and think yeah. you know it's it's one thing to be this jokey character yeah. Yeah. you know knockabout character who ends up in prison for drug addiction fine whatever when you start getting associated knock, with knock, knock jokey knock about drug jo- addiction. jokey knock about drug right, addiction, okay. but you know, but I mean that that's someone's personal life choice, right? And you it's can, private, and, like yeah, it's, and, you, and, and you can, you're responsible for your own yes behavior and and being, you can and you yeah. can separate that from from mm. the music. But I think when and I think it's the context of this as well that this was around the same time that Robin Whitehead, the filmmaker, also died. You know, she was in Pete's circle again with the the same same characters I think who were around. Mm. The, the Mark Blanco case, and again, no, like you say, no, no suggestion that Pete had any involvement in in her, mm. in her, you know, in her, her untimely death. But also, you know, it's not a good look. I think, as you said, for him to be associated with some of these stories. Pete's uh, he's always moved in these dark circles, and I think that's that is the world of of hard drugs. Really, that's that's what it is, and it's it's. Uh, it, I think it's one of the one of the reasons why it's a world I've never particularly wanted to delve into myself. But um, yeah, I, th- I think a lot of a lot of shady characters around Pete um, Wolfman, Peter Wolf, as sort of I think was perhaps even deeper in that world than than Pete was. Paul Roundhill certainly. Um, 
and I think with that kind of lifestyle becomes this 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 strange friendship non friendship relationships he has where you know I guess what you call like you know drug buddies mm. or something where you where you have these parasitic characters around you and all the darkness that that, that, that brings and the um the yeah the the crime yeah I think I mean I don't know I mean in terms of talking about the specifics of you know, the cases of death. So I, I, I wouldn't want to want to add too much because yeah, I'm there's, there's enough to the cases. Uh, there's, there's enough crime. Myself. There's enough crime podcasts out there. This is a music podcast. Thinking about the Rhythm Factory gigs reminded me of of that time when Pete was playing so many shows. Some of them would be some solo. Some of them would be Baby Shambles. And I used to go to all of them because you just never knew what was going to happen. I remember going to one in a venue in Brixton. And it was either a church or a converted church, but it was really big. And I went with my friend um, Kelly, and we were sat in a side room upstairs. And she said, um, "Oh, I recognise this place. I was here six months ago. This was the piss room." And at the time, she was a she worked for one of the real life magazines. You know, it's all like these strange first person stories. Mm. And she'd come to report on some kind of. Um, urine-related orgy, <laughs> like ev- like a, 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 events that was held here, and like people sort of put paddling pools up. And, a, a golden shower event. Yeah, that kind of thing. And she was sort of like, I guess, there with a notepad. And while we were just sitting having a beer in this room, she was like telling me how there was a paddling pool right next to where we were <laughs> like set up. But anyway, um, Baby Shambles came. And I think they played a couple of shows. Some of them were amazing. And they played some of these songs that you don't really hear. They played a, a song called Ocean which I don't think has ever been... I might be completely wrong, and there might be Baby Shambles fans screaming at my inaccuracy, but I don't think it's ever been released. Just one of those songs that fell into the cracks. Really amazing song, just really big and sort of slow and like building glowing guitars. And they played The Man Who Would Be King, which is the B-side of um, one of the early, early Baby Shambles songs, which is a great song that you don't hear much. But anyway, um, I remember being backstage after one of these shows and Lily Cole was there the the model the model and actress and, I think as well yeah and there's other lady who's a, a um, I think she's a Romanian model named Irina and I forgive me I can't remember her surname but an ex-girlfriend of Pete's but they were there looking incredibly glamorous and beautiful backstage Kyle Falconer from The View was there, <laughs> was there as well wearing the same jeans same jeans on for, for four same days jeans. yeah four or five um and it was either Lily Cold or Irina's birthday. So they had this huge cake with a load of candles on it. And Carl from The View was playing around with this enormous like electric um, screwdriver. You know, what a really, really big, heavy one. The kind of thing that like a serial killer could use to do some serious damage to someone's head. And um, he was sort of like pulling the trigger and making this sort of <laughs> sound, sort of playing around with it. And Pete just grabbed it and just shoved it into this cake and just pulled the trigger and just like flakes of chocolate just flying everywhere. And of course, it's that thing that, you know, if I had done that, if I had picked up a, an electric uh, a screwdriver and just shoved it into this cake, it would have been like, who the hell is this guy and what is he doing? But because you're kind of, you know, the, the alpha male guy in the room, you know, it's the baby shambles gig, you're the, you're, you know, you're the sort of centre of attention, everyone just sort of giggles and laughs and <laughs> probably thinking I would have quite liked to have eaten that cake, but um, after the show, I mean, it was really really late, and like four in the morning or something, and we went downstairs and all the, all the fans had gone, and um, 
Pete and Mick Whitnell, the Baby Shambles guitarist, got into um, a big hire car that they'd had with the driver. And I got into a car of um, Adam Fychek, the drummer. He was going to give me a lift back um, back to London. And um, and one of one of Pete's managers as well. So we, <laughs> we saw these, what can only be described as crackheads on bikes. Hmm. Um, they, they clocked Pete. I mean, he was, you know, they, they, they recognised him. Went over on their bikes, you know, hoods up, and sort of there was some kind of interaction between them and, and, and Pete and Mick. And we saw this going on, and we were sort of, you know, just Adam was just, just putting his keys in and starting up the car, and Pete's manager was just, just getting in the back of the car. But before he could close the door and we could drive off, one of the crackheads sort of launched himself in, uh, in, in, in the doorway. And started saying, Pete said you'd give me money, Pete said you'd give me money, you know, just, just, just shouting. It's completely bizarre. I was going to say funny, but it wasn't funny. It was rather terrifying, really. <laughs> and um, Adam started revving the car and actually moved the car forward like a few, <laughs> few metres. But it was clear this guy just wasn't going to let go, you know. He, he really wanted to get some money for whatever reason. And um, probably had a bet with Pete. Yeah, probably. It's, but there's quite a lot of chicken shops in the area. It's probably a bit, a bit hungry. But, um, you know, after this, this really bizarre standoff with Adam just sort of like getting increasingly annoyed, just revving the car and moving forward every few metres every, every couple of seconds and us just saying, like, no, we're not going to give you any money. Um, Pete's manager just sort of peeled off a £20 note and just like threw it in the same way that you'd throw like base as an animal away from an animal to try and just like if if i don't know if you're trying to like break into a house and they've got a big rock bio and you'd throw a steak <laughs> like you know like, like in the garden or something to distract it like that and it worked and this 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 um cracker just launched lurched and launched at the 20 pound note and we managed to close the door and we didn't say anything we just sort of kept a silence and adam just just drove off north and after about 20 seconds gap he said um do you mind not booking us any gigs in Brixton for a while? <laughs> and, uh, and then uh, and, and drove us home. So yeah, this was one of the reasons why you couldn't ever miss like a Baby Shambles or Pete gig as an enemy journalist because there was always something, always something like that going on before, or after, or during. Hmm. I think we'll probably bring it back to yeah. the music just just to kind of wrap up a little bit. I guess you know you, you're now not in you know you're not a music journalist anymore, not as as kind of nor am I. But are you still a fan of the band um, yeah. you know would you would you still see them live if they came over to of where course, you're living in Southeast Asia yeah I'm the Libertines are my favourite band of all time are, are super furry animals but I think my second favourite band of all time uh, the Libertines they mean a, they mean a great deal to me and I think it's just it's just good to have them around I think you know it's some people think that when any kind of artist makes some kind of comeback or there's a reformation this that and the other there's always a danger to tarnish some kind of legacy or even making a sequel to something they've made before there's a danger of tarnishing a legacy um i've never really subscribed to that view i think when someone creates something when someone makes some art when someone puts something out into the world it is what it is and whatever comes after that shouldn't really necessarily affect how it is viewed or um just appreciated and i think even if the libertines had come back at any of the times they've made their comebacks whether it was the reading and leeds festivals or the more recent reunions and it just been an absolute shambles and you know just they, they were taking excuse the pun yeah they were yeah, apostrophe shambles um if they, yeah if they'd just taken the money and just played terrible shows and gone 
uh, it wouldn't have affected how great the first Liberties album is. Even the second album, which I think is is amazing as well, and has amazing songs on it, it wouldn't have affected what the Libertines mean to so many people, being that you know, I guess being their own subculture as such. And um, but it it was great, and it has been great. They've they've been playing great shows, been playing to a whole new generation of people who never would have seen them ever. They would just you know, maybe they would have. Yeah, just 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 heard the heard the records and getting to engage with that, and um, I think it's just good kind of yeah, it's just kind of good to have them around in in the same way it's good to have like Liam Gallagher around, you know, just like doing just, just playing shows, being out there, speaking, being an ongoing prospect, and also actually just seeing them get paid as well. Like the Libertines kind of split up before they got a really big, you know, they they had. They're going to make one more drug joke. They they they, they had to they had to you no know, habits that are probably quite draining on your personal finances. Yeah, back yeah, in the day. Yeah, and um, um, yeah, they they kind of dissipated before they really got their big paychecks. I guess. I mean, I don't know. I haven't seen the, the you know the spreadsheets from their accountancy firms. But you don't imagine Pete Doherty sits with the spreadsheet, surely? No, it's got quite <laughs> a lot of outgoings, I imagine. Yeah. But um. <laughs> Yeah, it's just kind of good to see them get what I've always thought they deserved. You know, just massive pay packet of playing festivals and playing shows. And you can have you can have both. You can have great music. You can have um, you know the band being a you know still you can still have that magic, and you can still have them getting getting, getting their dues and getting paid. I think it's just nice to see. Or some people feel the same way about the Stone Roses, Stone Roses as well. Them playing these enormous shows. I think it's cool. I think they deserve it. I think they should enjoy it, and I think they should. And they should carry on doing it already. So yeah, I wanted to kind of finish with getting your uh, peak predictions, bit of a alliteration there. Uh, and I think that's probably the hardest <laughs> okay. question I'm going to ask you today, only because I mean he's an impossible guy to predict. But there's yeah. some, some kind of key key questions I'm going to throw at you. So the Libs are currently supposed to be recording in Margate at their their kind of hotel come yeah, studio. It's not Thailand, is it? Will it result in an album? It would be good. And I don't. I mean, it it, it feels like they're on a. It definitely feels like the Libertines are. Uh, are, are an ongoing prospect and I think it's kind of nice to get to that level where not every day has to be waking up and thinking what are we doing with the Liberdeans t- today and how are we progressing this it can, you, know, you can kind of dip in and out you can take some bookings do a tour maybe not do anything together see the guys for not not see each other for six months or something you know get together in Margate with the well, they've, they've opened a hotel haven't they yeah well they're building one at the moment yeah they're still building it kitting it out i think i remember seeing they were trying to raise funds for it from donations <laughs> from begging to begging for donations recently so hopefully they get there but um yeah it, it, it feels it feels like the libertines are an ongoing prospect and i i would if i had to make any kind of prediction i would imagine it's quite likely that we'll get a new libertines album every sort of four years or something and hopefully they'll it'll just carry on being an ongoing pr- prospect into the future and um, I don't see any reason why it can't be a very long term affair really Baby Shambles, didn't they'll ever come back? Again it's sort of it's it's always, Baby Shambles has always been a dip in and out project hasn't it? Um, feels like Libertines is the, is the main event I guess I don't know, um, when was the last time they released an album? Sequel to the prequel isn't it? 2013 God doesn't feel like that long ago that album was really pushed by Drew McConnell, the bassist. He, I mean, he's, you know, he's a, he's a very good musician. He's a very good collaborator, and I think I, I get the, I think he's a good organizer. And 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 we had 
yeah, we, we, we did a couple of Baby Shambles covers at the time, I think, and um, spoke to them about it. And it was very much Drew who kind of got the act together and was like, look, we're not doing things. Let's get it together. And he got them in a room together and, and really sort of sort of pushed that. So that came from him. So maybe it might come down to um, what Drew's doing because he's playing a lot with Liam Gallagher at the moment. He's playing bass with Liam. But I think Liam is going to be playing shows again next uh well, there's rumours at the moment that he's going to play festivals, I think, next summer. So I imagine that's going to be fairly... Um, I think the second Liam album will come back um, sooner rather than later. So, um, yeah, again, it's just that classic thing of herding cats and getting everyone in a room at a time. I'd like to hear it. I really like Baby Shambles. I don't, I've never sort of seen them too much as a sort of sub-Libertines band. I think some of the Baby Shambles songs are absolutely up there with some of the best Libertines songs. Um, so... It would be good to see. And then just kind of finally, to bring it full circle round again, will Pete stay out of prison? Uh, yes. He hasn't been in trouble for a long time, I think, has he? Old habits do die hard, though. I don't know. He seems like in a good place. Everyth- everything I read um, about the current incarnation of the Libs, every time I see them um, in images, moving or still, they kind of... I, the whole vibe seems pretty positive and good. Um, yeah, I I think it all, it all feels pretty healthy at the moment from from an outside observer. You know, I'm I'm certainly not in as close to the libertines as I was in my enemy days. But mm. um, yeah, from an outside perspective, it's, I, it as a fan, I'd be really positive. Um, so I think that's probably a good positive note to wrap up on on there, Jamie. Uh, thanks for taking the time out to talk to us. Uh, You're welcome. This week, and we'll we'll see you next time. See you next time down in Albion, I guess. Cheers, Jamie. Bye-bye. So, that was awesome. <laughs> what a story. The stories are incredible. Oh, my God. I was just sitting there laughing the whole time. It was amazing. How, how was it interviewing an odd colleague? Was that odd? Um, I, I guess so, because I think the thing is we're both used to being the questioner. Yeah, yeah. You know, We're both used to being the one uh, coming up with the questions to usually trip someone up. So then, yeah, to have two journalists. I mean, I, I would I wouldn't really call that an interview. That was more just a conversation, I think. And that that's the way that I would always try and you know try and run a chat with someone like that, where you don't want to run it as an interview. You want to run it as as just a, a conversation with some level of focus on on the topic. Bringing it back to the actual topic and the story, but there are lots of stories. Um, it actually made me think as well. I know we'd said this before, but everyone's got a Pete story. Mm everyone who was into that thing anyway and I want to know from you guys out there if you have any Pete stories because I'm sure you do and if you do can you please tweet them to us and make us have a giggle um we're at demo tapes pod on twitter and instagram as well actually um and if you do have an email if you want to send us a long story as in if you have an email, <laughs> you account, have an email. Are we no as in like email? if you want to send us a long story then feel free to email us um that is demo tapes pod at gmail.com I think if we got enough of these, we would happily run a completely separate episode on just people's Pete stories, right? Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah, definitely. And it doesn't need to be... I mean, we're probably well aware that this episode will go up, will go live next week, but, you know, people might listen to it in a year or two. And actually, if Pete does come back and the Libertines come back big and strong, you you never know what's going to happen if he starts going out with another supermodel. This might become an even more pertinent topic, therefore... If we get enough, we'll do it. We'll do it, guys. And you think back to what Anthony Thornton said in uh, the chat we had a couple of weeks ago. Um, He reckons they are working on a new album in Margate at the moment, and new material is kind of on the way. So I guess, I guess they're. And the hotel, the hotel is going to be. It's going to be topical, right? A lot of people go. Margate's become 
uh, kind of a new cultural centre for the seaside. Well, you say that I went there over the summer, uh, and I, I don't think it's quite sure. been transformed in the way that. People no, but think it's it getting has. there. I think it's getting there. I mean, for, for me, Folkestone's actually where it's at, not Margate. Folkestone's lovely. So I, I, I used to live in Folkestone, so. You are biased. But anyway, I, th- I think I think I guess we'll we'll probably wrap up this episode here. I guess what I would say though is, you know, as much as we may do a future Pete episode, there may well be a side B. Um, we also may look at other members of the Libertines as well. You know, Carl obviously has his own story to tell with Dirty Pretty Things and the Jackals, and even uh, John Hassel, the bassist, has his own band. Gary Powell, the drummer, has got his own story. So you know, we're we're kind of, I guess, unashamedly massive fans of of this band, and unashamedly. Uh, I, we'll we'll return to the topic kind of as and when it 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 crops up. So you 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 probably like to hear more on this this subject in the future. I would say definitely. And in terms of other episodes we've got coming up, um, well, I won't we won't I won't ruin it for you. But I'm excited, and I was going to mention this before. But I'm going to see Lauren Hill on Monday. Oh, okay. I can't believe I'm going to see Lauren Hill. I've got last minute tickets, um, and. I've wanted to see, so The Miseducation of Lauren Hill is one of my childhood albums, and we'll talk about this on the next uh, kind of episode where we're talking about our teenage years, but mm. I spent many an evening in my bedroom, locked in my bedroom, listening to that album and singing along. Not rapping, because I can't rap, sadly. Although my friends might say I can, because I, t- I do end up doing hip-hop karaoke when it's around, but I don't think I can rap. But yeah, so I'm pretty, pretty excited to see her, um, and I'll, I'll be... Probably Instagramming live from that actually, mm. um, and so if you if anyone wants to kind of live vicariously through through me on that one, then they can. Um, have you got any gigs coming up in in the future, or is it winding down to Christmas now, isn't it? There's a cr- kind of Christmas parties and all sorts of things like that, but not necessarily gigs, right? Yeah, I mean th- this isn't really the season um, for gigs. I- I've recently booked some tickets to see the Horrors in the new year. Uh, they're doing a tenth anniversary of uh, Primary Colours, their second album, kind of the album that got me into. The horrors, uh, to be honest, so I can't wait for that. That's another episode, and we're definitely going to do one on the horrors because they were one of those bands where they completely changed, completely had a massive makeover. And yeah, it's one of Rick's favourite bands, and I've got a few things to say. I'm I'm on the fence about them, but I could be convinced. I used to like them, but probably just because they were more of a scene band when I was a, a stupid scene star. You, you were more into else. the haircuts and the music. Yeah, definitely. As, as most people were until the, until until they became until good prim, at music. Until Primary Colours came out <laughs> and kind of everything changed. Uh, so yeah, I mean they will appear on a uh, a future episode. But yeah, I guess we'll um, we've probably given far too much away about our future fans already. So probably a good chance to to wrap up. Um, you've already mentioned how to get us on the social channels at Demo Tates Pod on Twitter uh, and Instagram and the email address g- uh, demotapespod at gmail.com so I won't bother mentioning them again yeah thanks for that I guess the only thing to say is uh, we really appreciate the support we've had so far but um, if you can subscribe to us on iTunes um, Spotify or um, you can hear us on Audio Boom and also give us those five star reviews um, they really do help in kind of moving us up the charts however they work in in kind of iTunes and that sort of thing but yeah any and I think I think I've heard this on a few other pods recently uh, so I'll, I'll I'll nick this idea shamelessly share it with your friends if you hear this and you enjoy it <laughs> why not send it send it to a mate who's a fan of the bands or maybe you want to turn their opinion on a band or whatever or, or however it may be you know but anything you can do to help us get the word out um, is massively appreciated yeah so um, until next time um, have a good week everybody see you later yep see you next week